Um, how many of you grew up, um, we're going to be in Matthew 8, by the way. How many of you grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school? Wow. Wow, that is more than I expected. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Kind of rolls off the tongue if you've done it a few times, right? And we love our country, imperfect though she is. The American experiment, and we pledge allegiance. Why do we pledge allegiance to a country? You know, we could move our citizenship. It's not easy, but you can do that. You can go to another nation and become a citizen there, and you can be dual citizenship. You can renounce your citizenship. It's part of kingdom. It's part of nations and governments and order. But there's another kingdom that we also could pledge allegiance to, and that is the kingdom of God. And the Bible talks a lot about it because Jesus talks a lot about it. And the Bible talks a lot about it even before Jesus came along. There's a kingdom that will never end. America will end one day. Every nation is temporary. But the kingdom of God is forever. And there's a song, I don't know if you've ever heard it, I Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. And it's basically this idea of pledging allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ as your king, as your sovereign, as your your ultimate authority. This passage in chapter 8, and we're not going to finish chapter 8 today, but 8 and 9 really drill down on this idea of authority, that Jesus has it. Jesus has all authority, all authority over all authorities. And the question that arises for you and me is why does Jesus deserve my allegiance? Because it's a choice, right? You don't have to pledge allegiance to Jesus. You don't have to pledge allegiance to the American flag. You don't have to do it. Why would we choose to do that? Why does Jesus deserve our allegiance? And this is kind of what we've said is the overarching theme of the whole book of Matthew. And we call the series All because we said Jesus has all authority so that all nations, that's all the people of those nations, might pledge all allegiance to him. That's the essence of the book of Matthew. And so over and over and over in this passage, we're going to see references to the authority of Jesus. And today, he's going to really answer that question or begin to answer this question. Why, should we, why does he deserve our allegiance? And he's going to show us his authority through things he says and does. Through things he says, we're going to look at that next week, and things he does. But... Um, so, um, so we, you know, we have the gospel of, we're in the gospel of Matthew, which means um, it's kind of a biography of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And there's four of those biographies in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they're all sy- similar, syn- synonymous. I don't know if that's, but there's they're, they're a lot of similarities. They tell a lot of the same stories in the same order. And then John writes a version that's just very different, but all of them mesh beautifully. They work together. Luke writes very um, historically uh, chronological, very orderly, very precise in order as best he can based on his um, historical and journalistic investigation. 
math, so he's very detailed. He's a doctor. He's a historian. He's very good at that, good, good Greek grammar and all that. Matthew is a tax collector who writes his version. It's also very detailed and very precise, but he's not always chronological because he chooses to, to um, supersede chronology with thematic purpose. So if it suits his thematic purpose to rearrange things, he will, and he does. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, he does this pattern that really helps us kind of put things together. He, he gives us three miracles, and then he gives us two disciple lessons. Then he gives us three miracles, and then two disciple lessons, and then three miracles. Okay? Check it out. Chapters 8 and 9. Good stuff. All right, so we're going to start into that, and we're just going to do three miracles today. Um, we did that Johnny Cash song I love so much, you know, and some of the words have been changed a little bit there to make it work for us. Um, somebody needs to work on that Mike and the Mechanics song. All we need is a miracle. All right, so next week we're going to be, no, two weeks, we'll do some more miracles. But today we're going to look at three miracles that Jesus does on the heels of the, his preaching his manifesto that we saw in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Okay. Um, so if you go back and look in your Bibles at chapters 5, 6, and 7, you can see that, that it's all Jesus talking. In these sections, now that we're moving to 8, things are going to start happening. And so some of it will be Matthew and some of it will be Jesus speaking. And, and we'll, we'll parse that out as we look at it. But I really want us to just think about this question, why does Jesus deserve my allegiance? Because if, you, if you're thinking, you realize there's an implication there. If Jesus deserves my allegiance, then the question then follows, have I given it? And if he doesn't deserve it, and you've given it, why have you given it? So I want you to think through this, okay? Not necessarily, it's for your benefit, but it's also maybe for someone you're going to talk to this week. Now remember, he's been preaching to a, to a crowd of thousands of people. Okay. And he's been up high overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so the Sea of Galilee, the, the Jordan River, we're in the Middle East. Modern-day Israel overlaps much of what was even more so land of Israel back then. Jordan River flows into this body of water called the Sea of Galilee, which is a giant lake. And then the, sea of, the Jordan River leaves that into the Dead Sea, and it ends there. Okay. Um, we are on the north, we're near the north edge of the Sea of Galilee in this setting where he's been preaching, probably up on the cliffs of that sea. And now he's done and he's starting to descend back towards Cana, I'm sorry, Capernaum. Capernaum is a city on the north, kind of on the north, um, I don't know, tip of the Sea of Galilee there. It's a big fishing village. And he's heading down, and the crowds have just mobbed him. He is just, he's just barely able to move because the crowds just want to be near him and touch him because he's been preaching and teaching and healing, and people are just blown away by his presence. And then something happens that takes care of the mob like that. <laughs> a leper. A leper shows up. A leper is someone who has the disease of leprosy, okay? And there's some debate over what this disease does and what it is, and, but there's some things we can take away that will help us get a better picture of this. Basically, it was, it was a, a terminal disease with no cure, skin disease described in Le, uh, Leviticus 19 and, I'm sorry, 13 and 14, 
and it caused you to be considered unclean by the, by the Jewish leaders. And if you're unclean, that means you can't worship, you can't gather, you can't even live with your family. You have to, dare I say it out loud, quarantine for the rest of your life. Yeah. Talk about psychological trauma. The only people you could be around were other lepers. Now, there's debate over what this disease did. Some say it was a skin-rotting disease. Some say it wasn't rotting disease. But it was still this disease that affected you in such a way that um, it would eat away at your body in such a way that you would begin to lose parts of your body, like the tip of your finger would fall off. Apparently, you would lose some of the feeling um, in your hand. So if you put your hand on something hot and it was burning your hand, unless you could smell the flesh burning, you wouldn't even feel it. And so they would have injuries that would come. And so all of these things led to people being very disfigured over time. And it was a progressing disease. And there is even debate over whether it was contagious or not. We're not even sure about that. But it was an isolating disease. And you want to part a crowd quickly, just yell, unclean, unclean, and ring your little bell. And people will go this way because they don't want to be anywhere near you because they don't want what you have and they don't want to be considered religiously unclean because it's a pain to get cleaned again. It is this setting as they're coming down and Jesus is in the middle of this mob and someone says, it says right here, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, verse 1, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him, knelt before Jesus. Now, I don't know if he's worshiping Jesus or if he's just showing Jesus respect, but he goes down on his knees and who knows, maybe his face is in the dessert in the dirt, but he, he, um, but he, he gets before Jesus and asks him a question. And the crowd of course is going to part big time and spread out so that they're not close to him, but they're watching. They're watching what is happening here. Listen to what he says. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, he doesn't say heal me, but it's implied in what he's saying. And it actually shows that he's been listening. Now, I, I don't know. We don't know where this guy was, but I suspect he's on the fringes of the crowd, hidden in such a way that he could hear what Jesus was saying through the Sermon on the Mount. And he believes it. He believes that whoever Jesus is, he can heal me. And I have a disease. There's no hope for a cure. I am terminal. There's no hope for me apart from God himself intervening on my behalf. And so he goes to Jesus, risking the ridicule the, and all the pushback that the crowd could give him. And he confronts Jesus. Look at Jesus' reaction. Jesus reached out and did the unthinkable. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. I am willing. He said, be clean. And then the text that, that ever since the beginning of the early church is considered historically accurate says, immediately instantaneously, at once, he was cleansed of his leprosy. It's a miracle. 
it's a miracle. He talks about the power of the kingdom of God. Now he displays the power of the, God, of, of the power of the kingdom of God for a leper, someone that they would have considered useless, a waste of humanity. They might as well be dead. And he says, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to the leper, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now this gift, this, this go to Moses, go to the priest thing, this is all prescribed in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. So Jesus is actually telling him, submit to the authority of the word of God. That's what he's saying. Go do what you're supposed to do when you get healed of leprosy. I'm guessing the priests are going, oh, I hadn't come across this very often. What do we do with a healed leper? I mean, we always just ostracize him. He's come back. Um, is this guy for real? You know, I can't. I'd love to have been there and watched that whole go, scene go down. But I find it interesting that Jesus says, no, don't tell anybody, because there's not like nobody else saw it. Right? The crowd saw this. And his skin goes from flaky white, crusty white, peeling, blistering, I don't know, you know, digits missing, nose probably falling off, one ear might be hanging, and he is restored as if he never had it. Now, if you're like me, you have two feelings or thoughts going through your mind. One is, I hope that's true, and man, that's really cool. Mixed with some skepticism, right? Now, I'm going to treat it as if miracles are real because I believe miracles are real because scriptures make them out to be, present them to be historically true. And because the longer I've been in my walk, the more convinced through experience, I feel like I've witnessed miracles happening. Rare, by definition, miracles should be rare. But I also believe they can happen today. And this is where I depart with some of my brother's and sisters in Christ, because there's a movement called cessationism, cessationists, which is someone who believes that the, these kinds of spiritual gifts have ceased, cessation ceased. And I believe that for a while, and, and I'm just not there anymore. I have, to me, there's too, much, too many reasons I could go into uh, to where I'm just not convinced of that anymore. But I'm just going to say, let's take it at face value and let's go with this. Jesus is showing he has authority over disease the worst of diseases, okay? This is like somebody coming up with full-blown HIV AIDS, the crowd parts, and this person says, you can heal me if you're willing, and that person praying and they be healed, okay? That's how dramatic we're talking here, okay? That level of power, and, and this is what is presented. Now we move on from here to another person that is an unlikely candidate to be healed. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, this is the, the town I was telling you about, this on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is also Jesus' headquarters for his ministry, if you will. <laughs> headquarters, Peter's house, okay? Um, for his ministry in the region of Galilee. So remember, we have the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. and um, So Galilee is like... Let's see, you're looking over here, it's over like here, okay? So the Mediterranean Sea is that way, Galilee, and then Judea, okay? Sea of Galilee is, is close to the Galilean region. 
Capernaum is the city. He goes to this city, which is kind of where he bases his operations out of. And it says, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now, centurion, think century. How many years is that? 100 centurion, soldier over 100 soldiers. Okay, he's a Roman soldier, over 100 soldiers. This centurion came asking for help. Now, you need to realize something. This is like... This is like, well, let's just put it this way. This little town is probably small enough to where this guy is the most powerful representative of the Roman Empire there. Rome is in charge. All of Israel is underneath the power and authority of of the Caesar of Rome, okay? So they do whatever Rome tells them to do, and they are so they basically see Rome as an occupying, oppressing force that they wish would go away, and they're praying that their Messiah is going to show up and lead them militarily to overcome this occupation, deliver them, okay? And he, this man, approaches Jesus and calls him Lord. Now, I don't think he's calling him necessarily Lord as in Lord of all, but he is certainly at least using a term of respect. And he comes to him and he says, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. In those days, a servant was usually the equivalent of a slave. So he was property. He or she was property. And there are, we have quotes, I could quote you, documents written from that time that basically said that you treat inanimate objects, animals, and slaves the same way. Just If you don't need them anymore, you just discard them. Okay? Uh, broke that clay pot, throw it out. This animal's leg is broken, get rid of it. This slave is paralyzed, I don't care what you do with him, just get him out of my sight. But not this guy. His servant is paralyzed, so he's he sees no hope unless this Jesus fella, and he's um, and he cares about him. So there's something going on in the heart of this centurion. He approaches Jesus and he says, um, "He's lying at home, paralyzed, and he's suffering terribly." And he's basically saying, "What can you do? Can you do something?" And really, he's not saying. He's really not saying, "Can you do something?" He's really saying, "Will you do something?" You see the difference. He already believes that Jesus can, or he wouldn't be there. Same with the leper. Lord, he said, my servant is home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Jesus is ready to go. Now, he's a Gentile, and Jews in that day would not, were not permitted to go in the home of a Gentile. A Gentile is a non-Jew. Anybody who's not a Jew is called a Gentile or a pagan, depending on who's talking. Okay? And Jesus says, shall I come? And heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Again, tremendous respect. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority. You see, he's recognizing that even though he has authority, he's under authority. And with soldiers under me, so he's over others, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he's, getting, he's saying, I understand something about you, Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. 
Jesus is only amazed. Scripture only tells us Jesus is only amazed two times. Both times were because of someone's faith. In this case, it's the faith of a Roman centurion. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This is hilarious. He's talking to his own disciples. I haven't found anyone with this much faith in all of Israel. And they would have considered this guy a Gentile dog. And they don't mean cute puppy when they say dog. And that's what Jesus says. That's, and this is kind of runs through this. Jesus continues, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Matthew, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God means the same thing. These people from the east and the west. East and west of what? East and west of Israel. So what is he referring to? People not Jewish. Okay? So he's, re- he's referring to the nations. Okay, remember? All authority. Jesus says all authority so that all nations might pledge all allegiance to him. And then he says something that would have shocked the disciples. But the subjects of the kingdom, he's referring to the Jews, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We know that's a description of hell, right? Well, that's not what we expect to hear. We expect that the Gentiles will go there and the Jews will be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus flips it and says, not necessarily because it depends on what you believe and who you trust and who you're following. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. See, he's acknowledging the centurion's faith and his servant was healed at that moment. So we have a leper, a Jewish leper man who was basically left to die, healed, Jesus has power over disease. Here we have it again. Jesus has power over disease, even for those who are not, quote, unquote, the chosen people of God. When he does this for a Roman soldier, a centurion, a pagan, a a Gentile, a non-Jew. And now he's going to go to the third person. And this is a very personal, this would be very personal. When Jesus came into, I'm in verse 14 now. When Jesus came into Peter's house, okay, this is Simon Peter, one of the 12 disciples. He saw Peter's mother-in-law. So now we know Peter was married. Interesting. Okay. Um, first Pope married. Okay. Don't get me started. All right. When I know we have a lot of recovering Catholics, please bear with me. I'm a recovering something else. So when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Now remember, they can't just go take two Tylenol and move on, right? When they have a fever, that means there's something going on. And, you know, unless you can find a berry or something to rub on it, you're in trouble. (laughs) There's not a lot of cures available. Can't go to the dock in a box. He touched her hand. Again, Jesus doesn't have to touch. He just demonstrated that with the centurion's servant. He healed him, and he never even laid eyes on him. But here he's going to touch her hand, and the fever left her. How quickly? Well, it seems to be pretty quick because it says, and she got up and began to wait on him, serve him. Okay, now if you'll allow me a little side trip here, serve him. This is the appropriate thing to do when God blesses you. When God heals you physically, it would be appropriate for you then to get up and serve him in some manner. 
Okay, But you know, as well as I do, when you read the Bible, whenever we see physical healing, it's always a cue that there's a much greater healing that is available to us and that the principles transfer. And that healing is spiritual healing. And what is spiritual healing in the Bible? It is moving from enemy of God to son or daughter of God. It's recognizing that my sin is a disease I cannot lose and get rid of any better than if I was a leper and I had leprosy. If I had HIV and I had AIDS, if I had, you name it, I can't cure myself from these diseases. Sin is terminal and there is no cure apart from a spiritual transfusion of the blood of Jesus. Okay. How does that happen? When I trust that Jesus is my only hope and can heal me spiritually. Okay. And when I say spiritually, I don't mean less real. I mean more real. Jesus heals me. Because like these, like the leper, like the centurion, okay, I believe he can, and he demonstrates not only can he do it, but he wants to do it. I am willing. Remember he said to the leper, I am willing, okay? The spiritual healing is available to us. That's called salvation. It's called, you know, we, we say things like being saved, and, and, and we use our terms, and sometimes we confuse people by the way we say things. But at the end of the day, he frees us from being slaves to sin and our, our selfishness that is rooted in us from birth. And he delivers us in such a way that we don't have to live selfishly anymore. Yes, we sometimes do. We Christians are pretty selfish people. But it's not because we have to. We're not enslaved to it. It's even worse. We're choosing to be selfish. Okay, but that's another sermon for another time, right? Okay, and I'm right there with you. But, but Jesus is delivering those who have this disease of, of selfishness that's so, it's so entrenched that it rots our soul. And he says, I can cleanse you from that like that. Just come to it. So, and it comes back to this question. Can Jesus do it? Yes, he has the power, he has the authority. Will he do it? Uh, We'll get back to that. Okay, so let's finish up here. So when Jesus came, so he heals Peter's mom. This is interesting. We have no idea whether she believed or not. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, oh, by the way, that spiritual application of serving is appropriate too. When I'm saved, I serve. I'm saved to serve. Right? Think about it. We were spared, many of us were spared a lot worse in our yards than we had. Right? Could have been a lot worse. And I was glad that I was cutting up trees in somebody else's yard instead of my own. Right? Even though I know y'all ought to have been there and y'all have even brought lemonade. Cut up my tree, right? But I wonder how many of us could have gone and didn't. And I was thinking about this yesterday. I was just like, I know, I know my job is not to make people feel guilty. That is not what I'm trying to do. But I believe God wants me to just to say, some of you had a choice to go and be a blessing out of what God had blessed you with. And you chose to do something with that. But probably not all of us. And it's just, it's just a reminder. God blesses you for a reason. He blesses me for a reason, to be a blessing to someone else. Not to earn anything, not so that God will pat me on the back, not so that God will love me anymore as if that were possible. Just, that's what we do. If we call ourselves Christ followers, then to follow Christ is to bless. 
as he blesses us. We're conduits of his grace. Okay, so um, he ends up with, when evening came, many who, this is just kind of a summary statement, and this happens periodically, these summary statements. When evening came, so it's been a long day, here it is, it's finally dark, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Because there's oftentimes a connection between illness and, yes, demon possession, which is just a fallen angel, which is powerfully real, and, and you don't want any part of that. And he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Okay? And this is out of Isaiah 53, 52 and 53. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. Where did that happen? That happened to the cross, right? So this tells me, maybe not immediately, but Jesus doesn't deal with the penalty of my sin, but apparently he deals with the consequences of my sin. I don't think I ever knew that. He took on all the illnesses, what does it say? All the infirmities and diseases that are caused by ultimately sin, right? No sin, no disease, no sin, no suffering. Our world has those things because of sin. And he deals with that one day, no, none of that. It's, you know, we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth, and we have none of that to deal with. So um, I want to end with this. I thought this was a pretty neat um, story. It's, um, it's a pastor. Uh, this is out of, uh, David Platt shares this illustration in one of his commentaries. And he's talking about a pastor in Philadelphia named uh, James Boyce. James Montgomery Boyce, okay? And I don't know much about him, but I've seen a lot of his books. I haven't read any of them, but I, I know he's a, he says, a well-known pastor out of 10th Presbyterian Church. Not 9th Presbyterian Church, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. In 2000, he was diagnosed with cancer, okay? So here's this church's pastor diagnosed with cancer, and he shares with his congregation about how they should pray. And this is answering the question, should you pray for a miracle? Okay, I found this really interesting. So now I'm quoting James Montgomery Boyce. He's talking to his congregation when he says this. I imagine it's on a Sunday morning, and he says, should you pray for a miracle, referring for him? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that God, who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing, or it's not a miracle, is what he's implying here. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. That's his prayer request. Pray for the glory of God. Interesting. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? Well, he did it at the cross. He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? That was a quote right before he was arrested or as he was being arrested. But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what, he, what was going on and something bad slipped by. God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. End quote. David Platt adds, 
that Boyce's testimony is a model in terms of what it means to have confidence in two things. The sovereign power of God, he is able, and to trust in the sovereign will of God. Do you believe he's good? This is really where our prayer requests run into trouble, right? I believe God can heal, but I'm not convinced he will. And then we feel guilty because we're like, well, how do I pray? Like Boyce, we too must trust that God, is, that God will do what is good. I mean, God defines good, right? He's not just good in that he does good things. God is good just like God is love. Um, those are my words, not Platt. Back to Platt. He said, Boyce died eight weeks after sharing these words with his congregation. But he died trusting in two things, the sovereign power and the sovereign will of God. He knew that Jesus was able to heal, yet he submitted to Jesus' will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So I don't know. I add this not so much because it does speak to the authority of God and that God really has the authority and the power to deal with disease, okay? We're going to see that he has the authority not over, only over disease, but over, well, we saw over demons. We've already seen that. And then there disciples, and there's going to be some more alliteration in the following weeks. But the point is this. He has the authority. The question is, do we, does he deserve our allegiance? And I guess that just depends. Do you believe that he is not only able, but that he is good? Okay. Of course, this implies that you assume that you believe that he exists, obviously, and I realize not everybody does, and that's fine, but it could be that the God you don't believe exists, maybe it could be that you, that God doesn't exist, the one you're envisioning, because what's he like? Sometimes we envision God in a way that he's not at all what he's like, and I hope that God doesn't exist, okay? But there's a God that exists. He's described in this word, and you and I may be the best picture to someone who's never read that of what that's about. What is God like? I would hope he could look at you and me and imperfect though we are, if you follow us around and look at the pattern of our lives, that they would be able to describe our God based on how you and I live. And that is rooted in what you and I believe about God. Do I believe that God is able? Do I believe that God is good? Therefore, do I believe he's trustworthy? Not only can he do something good, but will he? And can I rest in that will, that good, pleasing, and perfect will, even if it's not what I will? Right? We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray. That's what we say. But do we believe? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, as we come to you in this time, we, we just are so grateful that you were willing to, to heal this leper. You were willing to touch him. Lord, you were willing to go to this centurion and you were willing to go to his house, step in through the threshold of a Gentile home and heal this paralyzed servant that was suffering terribly. And you did heal, but you didn't have to go because you have all authority. All authority. We don't like authority because we don't like people telling us what to do. And that's human nature, and we're born with that nature, and that's a sinful nature because authority is good to the extent that that authority is like you. I'm grateful for the authority in our world 
even though there are times when I push back, sometimes legitimately so, because it's imperfect. But you're perfect. You hold time and space in your palm. You order it and you rule. And that is your realm. That is your kingdom. And we as Christians get to be part of that kingdom even though we don't deserve it at all. Nothing. We don't deserve... In fact, we deserve your judgment and your wrath. That's what we deserve. And it is why we sing praises to you that you showed us mercy when we deserve justice. So thank you. Lord, we forget though. And we live our lives as if we deserve this. And no, we don't deserve it. But you do deserve our allegiance. And I pray that today we would once again pledge our allegiance to the lion and the lamb of, that is Jesus the Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, creator and redeemer of all there is. She would give us a heart to believe and a courage to believe it. The truth that sets us free. I thank you, Lord, for the picture that you gave us through baptism of dying to our old thoughts, dying to our old selfish ways, and going into that watery grave and being raised to walk a new life with you, in step with you, reflecting you, glorifying you through our words and our actions. God, I thank you for that. But Lord, I admit that I fail miserably every day. Lord, may we not give up in doing good. May we continue to press on for the goal to win the prize. May we remember that you love us whether we do well or not. Your love for us is unconditional even as it's undeserved. But Lord, it is all because we believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he's doing all that he's promised to do. And so God, increase our faith that we might walk more truly with you, more faithfully for you. Bless these who have been baptized. Empower them and and fill them with your spirit that they might overflow with a, a, a healthy desire to please you and to zealously live for you, to reflect you into our world. Reflect light and life and love, compassion and mercy, grace and truth. And I pray for these families they live in that they would be blessed because of that and that they would bless because they're being blessed. And we ask it in Christ's name.